Merry Christmas, everybody. How are you? Good. So, Psalm 2. I'm so excited about uh, Psalm 2. It's just a perfect psalm for this time of the, of the year. And um, who had a chance to read Psalm 2 this week? Chance to read it? Good. Good for you. Thanks for doing that. Um, Pastor Dave is in Florida again. I think he's got a vacation spot there, and he's just not telling anybody. But he is indeed working, or so he says. And he will be preaching on Psalm 143 next weekend. I'm really excited about that. Last time he preached, I was not in attendance, so um, I always like to be here, especially when he preaches. He's, he does such a great job. Um, last week, I, I was you know, shameful in my attempt to get Hershey's with almonds out of you guys, even though it was my wife's birthday. But I want you to know it met with a little bit of success. I got a king-size Hershey's with almonds that I, th- I actually thought was for me. I didn't realize it wasn't for me until after I had ate, eaten it. I'm sorry, honey, but thank you for having a birthday for me. Um, and then also on, uh, on Tuesday, on my way to the office, I, I take Mondays off. And uh, so I was on my way to the office, and I had a chance to check in with Pastor John just to see how he was doing. And he's, he's doing well. He's doing really well. And um, almost back to you know, complete health, which I'm very thankful for. And it was great. He's, um, I've only known John for a year. I'm still getting to know him. And uh, even though a year's a long time, it's still a short time, you know. And many of you have known Pastor John for many, many years. And I, I know more each day why you love him so much and why we have cared for him so well. Um, he's just a dear man. And it was just neat to spend some time with him on the phone. And, and he checked in with me. He says, how you doing? You know, we talked work. Like, how you doing as being the pastor? And so it was great because obviously he's walked in these shoes many years over me. And, and uh, I just had a chance to say, you know, things that are hard and things that are not so hard and, and just to be encouraged and loved by him. And I told my wife it was so meaningful for me. And I'm so thankful for him. And I can see why this church loves him so dearly. Um, I just continue to fall in love with he and his wife, Kay. Um, but they're doing well. And, and as always, he always wants me to say hi to everybody. Tell them I said hi. Um, he's doing well. Psalm 2. We're going to read Psalm 2. We normally don't start like that. But we're going to read it first. I'm going to tell you a little story, and then, uh, and then I'm going to give you a summary, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll go from there. All right? So let's read Psalm 2 together. Psalm 2, verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar? And the peoples devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. 
Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that He not become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. What a great psalm, not only for this time of the year, but arguably as we will unpack, just for a great time in our lives. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on out there. But this is going to be a great reminder of who our Lord is and how fortunate we are. When Queen Victoria had just ascended to her throne, she went, as is the custom of royalty, to hear Handel's The Messiah. She had been instructed as to her conduct by those who knew and was told that she must not rise when others stood at the singing of the Hallelujah Chorus. When that magnificent chorus was being sung and the singers were shouting, Hallelujah, 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 for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. She stayed seated, but with great difficulty. It seems as if she would rise in spite of the custom of kings and queens. And finally, when they came to that part of the chorus, where with a shout it is proclaimed of him, King of Kings, suddenly the young queen rose and stood with bowed head as if she was going to take off her crown and cast it at his feet. Wow, what a great visual. Psalm 2, in summary, is a messianic psalm. And it's quoted or alluded to at least 18 times in the New Testament, more than any other psalm. And a test of what makes something a messianic psalm is that it is quoted in the New Testament and, of course, referring to Jesus as the Messiah. It is also a royal psalm, referring to the coronation of a Jewish king. And as we would read, if we were to read in in Acts chapter 4, verse 25, David is identified as the author of Psalm 2. Israel was ruled by the Lord through his prophets and through his judges until the nation requested a king other than the Lord, essentially. The Lord knew this would happen and he made arrangements for it. Saul was not appointed to establish this dynasty because the king needed to come from the tribe of Judah, and Saul was not from Judah, but was a Benjamite from the tribe of Benjamin. And so David was God's uh, choice to establish the dynasty that would eventually bring the Messiah into the world, and we see that in 2 Samuel chapter 7. However, both Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7 go beyond David and his successors. For both the covenant in 2 Samuel 7 and the psalm, Psalm 2, speak about a universal kingdom and a throne that's established forever. And this can only be fulfilled in one person, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. The son of David is who he's referred to in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Let's pray. Lord, every day is a good day to be reminded of your anointed King, Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our Messiah. And Lord, it's especially good during this holiday season to be reminded of what we are really here to celebrate. And that is your anointed king who came for us to establish his kingdom. And so, Lord, we lift up his name and we glorify his name. In your name we pray. 
And everybody said, Amen. So Napoleon Bonaparte has a great, great quote. I'll go slow, slow enough for hopefully it to, to really uh, hit where it needs to hit. Napoleon Bonaparte says this. He says, I know men, and I tell you, Jesus Christ was not just another man. Superficial minds see a resemblance between Christ and the founders of empires and the founders or gods of other religions. That resemblance does not exist. There is between Christianity and all other religions the distance of infinity. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself, writes Napoleon, founded empires. But on what did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon sheer force. Jesus Christ alone founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men will die for him. In every other existence, every other person that has existed except that of Christ, how many are there imperfections? From the first day to the last, he is the same. He's majestic yet simple, infinitely firm and yet infinitely gentle. He proposes to our faith, he proposes to our faith a series of mysteries and commands with authority. And that we should believe those mysteries and commands. Giving no other reason does he, other than these tremendous words, I am God. The Bible, Napoleon continues to say, contains a complete series of acts, A-C-T-S, a complete series of acts and of historical men to explain time and to explain eternity, such as no other religion has to offer. If it is not the true religion, one is very excusable in being deceived. Oh, I love that. For everything in it is grand and worthy of God. The more I consider the gospel, the more I am assured that there is nothing there which is not beyond the march of events and above the human mind. What happens, I'm sorry, what happiness that book procures for those who believe it. What happiness that this book brings, provides to those who believe it. What great words from Napoleon Bonaparte. Here's our outline for this morning. If you noticed in Psalm 2, there, there, it's in, in uh, chunks of three verses, 1 through 3, 4 through 6, uh, 7 through 9, and, and, and 10 through 12. And they're called strophes or stanzas. And that's how it was written, and that's how we're, we broke it up for the outline. So verses 1 through 3, rebellion against the Lord. In the next three verses, 4, 5, and 6, the response of the Lord. And then 7, 8, 9, the Redeemer of the Lord. In the last three verses, taking refuge in the Lord. The big idea, and after we post the big idea, we'll leave that up for a little bit, and then we'll go back to this so you can write that down if you haven't had a chance to copy it. But The big idea is God's King in Psalm 2 has been anointed, He's been installed, He's been declared, and more importantly, or as importantly, He's been empowered. And we have a couple choices tonight. We can choose to refuse this, refuse Him, or choose to take refuge in Him. We can refuse, or we can refuge, or take refuge. 
We'll leave that up for a second so you can copy that down, and then we'll go back in a few minutes, guys, to the, to the um, outline so people have a chance to write that down. So let's, let's begin at verse, uh, in the first three verses of Psalm 2. Rebellion against the Lord. Let's read. Why are the nations in an uproar? We know it as, why do the nations rage, is another rendering. Why do the nations rage and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers counsel together against God and against His anointed, and they say, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. The opening question in verse 1 is actually a rhetorical question. It's really more of a statement of astonishment or amazement that nations, that people, think that they can overthrow the Lord and His anointed one. It's just kind of silly. He cannot believe the psalmist that the nations would plot something, that they would spend time plotting something that's doomed to fail from the very beginning. One Bible version is actually called the French Common Language Version. I'm not saying go out and buy it, but I love the way they put this verse. It says, the nations are in an uproar, but why? The people's plot, but it's useless. It is kind of silly. I love this. I've been saved for over 30 some odd years, and I've talked to many people about the Lord. And many say they believe in God, don't have a problem with God. Perhaps... They even say that they desire to know him and please him. Last Sunday, uh, I, think I took my car in to get an oil change, and this guy had a big old tattoo. And um, it was a cross, beautiful, beautiful cross, and American flag. And so he's getting me checked in, and I said, tell me about your tattoo. I want to hear all about it. He says, God and country. I said, the country part I get. Tell me about the God part. And so we talked for about a half hour. And this is where I'm going with this, that... People might believe in God. And this guy, he's, he's in favor of God. But this can also be in vain, just like these nations. Because if we, we fail to recognize his anointed, and that's what this guy, he, he was okay with God, but he didn't recognize God's anointed king, which was Jesus. And so we talked about Jesus. And we exchanged emails. But we can do this in vain if we don't recognize what's happening in Psalm 2, the anointing of his king, Jesus Christ. Psalm 2 reveals that two persons are inseparable, God and His anointed King, His Son. Look in verse 11 and 12. It says, worship the Lord. And in verse 12, do homage to the Son. They go hand in hand. We worship the Lord by recognizing that His King that has been installed and anointed is His Son, Jesus Christ. And so those two are inseparable. We cannot be pleasing to God without accepting who His Son is. Additionally, what's also interesting is when you consider all that God has done, not just for us, but for everybody, how can people rebel against this God who does everything? Let me show you. Turn to Acts chapter uh, 4, while you're t- or 14. God, we will see in Acts 14, has provided our basic needs. God guides people. He keeps people alive. He sent them a Savior. He brings forgiveness and eternal life. Acts chapter 14. This is why it's foolish for people to rage against God. 
Acts 14, verse 15, he says, Men, why are you doing this? We are also men of the same nature as you. And we preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. He made heaven and earth and the sea and everything that's in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. And yet, he did not leave himself without witness. In that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and with gladness. Everything comes from him. And it's foolish to think otherwise. Read also in Acts 17, chapter 17, verses 24 to 31. Acts 17, 24 to 31. Verse 24. The God who made the world and what? All things in it. Since He is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live, in Him we move, in Him we exist, even, or as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are His children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Wow. Foolish to fight against this God. Nonetheless, we do. From the Tower of Babel in the book of Genesis, chapter 11, to the crucifixion of Christ, the beginning of the New Testament, to the battle of Armageddon at the end of the Bible, we continue to rebel against God. The Bible records humanity's foolish and futile rebellion against the will of the Creator. Kings and rulers form a conspiracy in Psalm chapter 2 to break the bonds that the Lord has established for their own good. Look in verse 3. When it says the, the, the nations and the rulers and the kings, they say, let us tear their fetters apart, God and his anointed king. Let us tear their fetters and cast away their cords. And the fetters and cords are symbolic for rule and control. It's like handcuffs and shackles, I think, right? To have your feet and your hands bound. And they're symbolic for rule and for control. We don't like God to rule and control our lives. We think we do a pretty darn good job. And so we too on some level still fight that. And the picture in verse 3 is that of a stubborn or raging animal trying to break the cords that bind the yoke to its body. But the attempt is futile. It's vain. 
True freedom can only come from submitting to God and His will. Because here's the deal. Those fetters and cords in verse 3, we're going to be fettered and cord, corded to righteousness, or we're going to be fettered and corded to unrighteousness. Turn to Romans 6, and it talks about that. Turn to Romans 6. What are we going to be bound by? We're bound by something. We don't have a choice. So let's choose the right one. It's one or the other. Romans six fifteen through 19. What then? Shall we sin? Because we are not under law, but under grace? Oh, may it never be, church. Do you not know that when you present yourselves at, to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, you're either going to obey sin resulting in death, or you're going to obey obedience resulting in righteousness. Verse 17, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to the form of teaching which you are committed to. And having been freed from sin, or in other words, being enslaved to sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you have presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now please present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in our sanctification. We will be fettered and corded to something. That's just all there is to it. The consequences of defiance against the Lord and against His anointed one, Jesus Christ, is described earlier in Romans chapter 1. And it starts at verse 18. We're not going to go there, but it's not a pretty picture. Matthew Henry, I'm going to paraphrase what he said. I love this. Here's a paraphrase. He says, One sure sign that Jesus, the Messiah, came from heaven is that the opposition of Him clearly comes from hell. Isn't that true? One sure sign that Jesus, the Messiah, clearly came from heaven is that the opposition of Him clearly comes from hell. And that's what's happening in Psalm 2. It's a nationwide or a worldwide revolt against the Lord and against His appointed King. It's not much different today, is it? Verses 4, 5, and 6. This is awesome. This is God. He who sits in the heavens, He laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury and say, But as for me, I have installed my King upon Zion, my holy mountain. In verses 4, 5, and 6, there's this peaceful scene. God's chilling, man. He's good. He laughs and scoffs. And so we have this peaceful scene that's contrasted with verses 1, 2, and 3 where the nations are in an uproar and they're raging. Interesting. Very much like us, right? We're in an uproar and God's just, He's good. He's relaxed. God is neither worried nor afraid as puny man rages against Him. He merely laughs and scoffs. After all, to God, the greatest rulers are but grass to be cut down and the strongest nations are nothing but a drop from a bucket. Turn to Isaiah chapter 40. A little to your right of Psalms is Isaiah chapter 40. 
We think so highly of ourselves. We think so highly of the rebellion of the nations against God. But we're not to. God laughs and He scoffs. Isaiah 40, verses 6, 7, and 8. Verse 6. A voice says, call out. Then He answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. Verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Wow. Look at verses 15, 16, and 17. That's the grass. So here's the drop drop in a bucket. Verse 15, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. That's pretty clear. And they're regarded as a speck of dust on a scale. All nations, all mankind are like a speck of dust on a scale. It makes zero impact. Wow, what a visual. Like, really? No wonder he laughs. A speck of dust is going to threaten me. Oh, it's kind of silly. Hey, on some level, we've all been there, right? Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. Oh, we make too much of the things that the Lord scoffs at. Great verses. We might also laugh once we realize how easy it is for God to destroy his foes and the foes of our life. Consider over time Pharaoh, his wise men, his hosts, and his horses plowing and plunging and sinking like lead in the Red Sea. Consider in the early church 30 Roman emperors or governors of provinces who distinguished themselves by their zeal and their bitterness in persecuting the early Christians and trying to get rid of the gospel. Of those 30, let me tell you what happened to all 30. One became deranged. One was slain by his own son. One became blind. One was drowned. One was strangled. One died in miserable captivity. One fell dead in a manner that bears not repeating. One died of a loathsome disease. Two committed suicide. A third attempted it but needed help. No wonder he laughs. Five were assassinated by their own people. Five died miserable and excruciating deaths. Eight were killed in battle. The Lord laughs. When God establishes his king, he subjugates those who would oppose that king. It was true with David. And it was also true and will be true at the end of the age with David's greater descendant, Jesus Christ. We're in good hands. Today, today, God speaks to the nations in His grace. He speaks to the nations in His grace today. And He calls the nations to trust in His Son, Jesus Christ, His appointed and anointed and declared King. But the day will come when He will no longer speak in His grace, but He will speak in His wrath. 
and send terrible judgment to the world as we see in the book of Revelation. If we do not accept God's judgment of sin on the cross through His Son and anointed King, Jesus Christ, then we'll have to accept God's judgment ourselves directly. Verse 7, 8, and 9 in Psalm 2. What a great psalm for this season. 7, 8, and 9. Redeemer of the Lord. And this is Christ speaking, the Messiah. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. So the enthroned king now speaks in verses 7, 8, and 9. And he announces what the father said to him in verse 7. He says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. And this simply informs the rebellious people, the rebellious nations, the rebellious rulers and kings that God rules His creation on the basis of His sovereign decrees. This is how God rules His Word. He doesn't ask for a consensus. He doesn't take a vote. His decrees are just, without mistake, and always, always perfect. The Father has promised the Son complete victory over all nations, over all peoples, which means that one day He will reign over all the kingdoms of the world. Satan offered this honor to Jesus when He was in the wilderness to be tempted, but Jesus refused Him in Matthew chapter 4. Christ's rule will be just, but it will be firm. Look in verse 9. He says, You will break them with a rod of iron, You will shatter them like earthenware. That means we will either be shepherded. To break them means to shepherd them like a shepherd has a rod of iron. We will either be shepherded in the first part or we'll be shattered like earthenware. I encourage you to be shepherded by the king instead of shattered by the king. In these verses, in verse 2, we see that the Lord decreed his anointing. Against the Lord and against his anointed in verse 2. The Lord decreed his anointing In verse 6, he decreed his kingship. In verse 7, he decreed his sonship. And in verse 8, he decreed that all nations and the ends of the earth would be his inherited possession. That's what the Lord decreed. It makes sense to me that for us to experience and see then, as we see now, an ends of the earth rebellion against Christ that it takes an ends of the earth ruler. And that's what we have. That he rules the ends of the earth. And so it makes sense that we would have an ends of the earth rebellion against him. That, that verses 1, 2, and 3 talk about. Verse 10, 11, and 12, taking refuge in the Lord. Verse 10, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence. Rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that He not become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. I think I mentioned this last week when we see the word therefore, ask why is it therefore. So now therefore means in light of everything that was just spoken of in verses 1 through 9. Considering all that I just said in 1 through 9, the psalmist says, consider. 
in view of the Father anointing his king, in view of the Father installing his king, in view of the Father giving his decree of his king, the wise thing for us to do was to surrender and trust in this king, Jesus Christ. The psalmist exhorts the foolish nations to submit to the king before his wrath is kindled in verse 12. And he says in verse 10, I just love it, O kings, O judges, he's pleading patiently and lovingly and kindly for them to be wise. To show discernment means to be wise and to take warning. O people, be wise, be warned. Psalm 1, if you look, in Psalm 1, verse 1, begins with how blessed is the man. And Psalm 2 ends the same way. And when we introduced Psalms a couple months ago, we talked about Psalm 1 and 2 sets up the entire rest of the 148 Psalms. How blessed is the man, Psalm 1, that says what? Who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. These are the fetters and cords of unrighteousness. Nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But he's blessed if he does what? If he delights in the law of the Lord, and on that law he meditates day and night. We are blessed by God's word. And then Psalm 2 is the man who takes, is blessed as the man. At the end of Psalm 2 in verse 12, how blessed are all who take refuge in him. And what that means, putting those together, is that we're blessed, church, when we come under two things. The authority of the King, Jesus Christ, and the authority of His Word. Our blessing is found in Christ and Him only, and His Word. And that's what Psalm 1 and 2 sets up for the rest of the 148 Psalms. The two cannot be separated. This is so important to how we live in His kingdom, what He has decreed, and who He has declared as King of His kingdom, which is Jesus Christ. I mentioned in the first service, I failed to mention this last night, one of the things that I'm going to do for the new year, and this is just my idea, and I would encourage you to find something that might be your idea for the new year. God's Word's always been very important to me, but I'm going to do something I've never done before. So I found this um, read-through-the-Bible thing, calendar, or whatever, that just resonated for me. I've seen lots of them, and none of them just whatever. I mean, I read my Bible all the time, don't get me wrong, but it's one where it's done by week. It just says, just read this on week one and read this on week two because my schedule's just kind of all over, right? And in this, in this calendar, if you, do, if you follow the 52 weeks, you will have read through the Old Testament once and the New Testament twice. So I'm going to do that, but I'm going to double up. So, I, so next year, in 2016, I'm going to read the Old Testament twice and the New Testament four times by following this schedule. Now that sounds impressive. I haven't done it yet. Right? But I'm going to do it. And... Um, I don't know if you guys know Karen Thompson. How many years has Karen's read through the Bible every year for 20, almost 30 years? It's remarkable. That's remarkable. So I've got to catch up to Karen. It's the only way I can do is I've got to double up my efforts. But I want, this is important to me, but I'm just recognizing more and more how much more important it needs to be to me. So I would encourage you to consider doing something the same. I'm actually, if you're interested in that, I'm going to print some of those and I'm going to have those available the next couple of weekends and I'll leave them out there with Brad or something. And it's just done by week. Week one, I like that because I just read in chunks. I can bang out 10, 15, 20 chapters and be done for the week, whatever that takes. But anyway, side note. They can't be separated. To serve the king properly, we have to serve and understand his word in order to serve him properly. His word helps us to show discernment as it says in verse 10. 
and to take warning, as it says in verse 10, so that we can do what in verse 11? So that we can worship the Lord the right way with fear, reverence, and to rejoice in trembling. Let me tell you a couple of W words from these last three verses. The first one in verse 10 is wisdom. It says, show discernment. We're to be wise. We're to be wise as people who live in the kingdom of God, as his followers. We're to be wise. And also, that's the first W word, show discernment or show wisdom. The second one is take warning, also in verse 10. This book is where we get our wisdom. This book is where we get our warnings so that we can do what it says in verse 11 so that we can worship properly because we're to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And worship means to serve. That's what worship means. And remember, it goes back to to Romans 6. Are we going to worship or serve sin? Are we going to worship and serve God? And then in verse 12, another W word is wrath. The warnings are there. We need to have wisdom. We need to worship properly so we can avoid the Lord's wrath. It's not what He desires for us. And so again, another W word, the word helps us to be wise, to be warned, to worship properly, and to avoid God's wrath, we need the Word because the Word helps us to understand and to reveal the will that we have inside of us and to recognize that, wow, just as Christ always said, not my will, but thy will be done. And so we get to understand through the Lord's decrees and through uh, His Word how He enlightens us to, show, to expose the evilness of our will and expose our will or transfer our will to His will, not ours. So to worship the Lord properly is to serve Him properly. Turn to Joshua 24, to the left of Psalms. Joshua 24. Many of us know these wonderful verses in Joshua 24. Starting at 14. And it starts with a heading, we will serve the Lord or we will worship the Lord. Now therefore, Joshua says, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and truth. That's why we need His Word. And put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and serve the Lord. I love this. If it's disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, not a problem. Choose for yourselves today whom you will serve because you're going to serve somebody whether the gods which your father served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Verse 16, the people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of Egypt from the house of bondage, and who did great signs in our sight and preserved us as we went through all the way to the uh, people's... uh, Anyway... Verse 18, as we pass through the wilderness, the Lord drove out from before us all the peoples, all the, uh, even the Amorites who lived in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for He is our God. Verse 19, then Joshua said to the people, you will not be able to serve the Lord. Interesting. For He is a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done good to you. 
And the people came back to Joshua again and said, No, but we will serve the Lord, which is great. And Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen for yourselves the Lord to serve Him. And they said, We are witnesses. Now therefore, put away the foreign gods which are in your midst and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. The people said to Joshua, We will serve the Lord our God and we will obey His voice. Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. And he wrote these words in the book of the law of God and he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And he said to the people, Behold, this stone shall be for a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us, and thus it shall be for a witness against you, so that you do not deny your God. And then he dismissed the people. It's interesting that he's, so often we yes, I'll follow God, but we keep the other gods in our life. And that's what Joshua was challenging. He says, you can't follow God. You can't keep these other things in your life and follow God. What a great challenge. So I don't know about you, church, but for me, in reading this, perhaps a question naturally comes to mind. In what sense is Christ and His kingship operating today in the world. Sometimes we wonder, is this really your kingdom, Lord? Are you ruling? In what sense is Christ's kingship operating in the world today? How is it that the world can appear so little changed and His kingship so little acknowledged? Some would answer that Jesus' kingship is completely future, but that fails to handle Christ's own statement that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's in our midst. It's among you or within us. Christ's kingship is indeed present, yet still future. It's already here and yet to come. It is spiritual and universal. His present kingship and His royal rule is in His people. Colossians 1.13, you don't have to turn there, says this. This is awesome. Colossians 1.13, if you want to write it down, it says, For He rescued us from the domain of darkness, or from the kingdom of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of light, or His beloved Son. Those are those two kingdoms, right? We're going to fetter ourselves to one or the other. So that's where we see His kingship, is that He rescued us from darkness and transferred us to the kingdom, it says, of His beloved Son. Oh, His kingdom's here. It's a spiritual realm established in the hearts and the lives of believers. And He administers His kingdom by spiritual means. That would make sense. And what are those spiritual means that He administers His kingdom? His Word, His decrees, and His Holy Spirit. Thank the Lord for that. He left us with those two things. Whenever we follow the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that's when He exercises His ruling or His kingly function. Does that make sense? His kingship also is present in the natural world. John 1.3 says that all things came into being through Him and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. Amen. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 says this, For by Him 
all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, everything has been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. So his kingship is also seen in the natural world as well as the spiritual world in our hearts and lives. He's also in control of the natural universe as he demonstrated in Mark chapter 4 where he rebukes the winds and he says to the sea, be still. Wow. On Palm Sunday he claimed that if the people had kept silent on that historic occasion that he can get the rocks to cry out. And as Philippians says, at the name of Jesus, God's anointed and declared king, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We can choose to refuse to believe that, or we can choose to take refuge in the Lord. What a great word for this Christmas season. Let me share with you a poem, and then I'm going to give an invitation. You know, when Christ started his earthly ministry, kind of just walked around and said, follow me. He still does that today. He just puts his word out, declares truth, and says, follow me. If you have never had that opportunity to really contemplate who you're following, this morning's going to be that opportunity for you to just say, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm tired of following something else or someone else. And I'm going to follow Jesus. Let me read this poem. It's called, Where Are Kings and Empires Now? Where Are Kings and Empires Now? The poem says this, Oh, where are the kings and empires now of old that went and came? But, Lord, thy church is praying yet a thousand years the same. We mark her goodly battlements and her foundations strong. We hear within the solemn voice of her unending song. For not like kingdoms of the world, thy holy church, O God, though earthquake shocks are threatening her and tempests are abroad, unshaken as eternal hills, immovable she stands. A mountain that shall fill the earth, a house not made by hands. We serve a wonderful King, Jesus, appointed by our Heavenly Father, who's provided us His good word so that we can know how to live well in His kingdom. We're so fortunate. So I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads, and we're going to pray, and I'm going to give an invitation for people to just say, yeah, it's time for me to start following Jesus. It's time for me to start following Jesus. None of us are promised the next breath, but we are all promised life through Christ. Please say yes to that. Please. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Psalm 2. We thank that we can be reminded that we are children of your kingdom. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your anointed king. If today is the day that the Lord is tugging on your heart saying, follow me, and you desire to follow Jesus for the first time, or you've really strayed from him perhaps, I don't know, and God's saying, follow me, if that's you, just slip your hand up and slip it back down so I can see it just real quick. 
God wants you to follow him. God bless you. Lord, thank you again so much. Thank you for this church. Thank you, Lord, that you are the king of this church. Thank you for your decrees that we get to study and wrestle with so that we can worship you with fear and trembling and rejoice because of it. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. And remember, we have prayer if you need it. On my left, your right. Have a great weekend, everybody. Great to see you.